Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. I'm so glad you could join us tonight. It's going to be a super show. Uh, And get a pencil and paper because you're going to want to write down the title of the book we're going to be talking about. It's called Bridging the Tragedy, Silver Linings in the Mysterious Ohio River Valley. And it's going to be the kind of book you want to read because it it, it implies so many interesting facts about each and every one of us in our own different ways. So let me give you a little bit of, of a backstory on the book. Uh, on December 15, 1967, trauma erupted in West Virginia as the small river town of Point Pleasant had just experienced the deadliest bridge collapse in U.S. history. Early that evening, lives in the Ohio River Valley were forever altered as the silver bridge connecting Point Pleasant to a small town in Ohio collapsed into the icy river below. 150 American Red Cross volunteers worked feverishly overnight to rescue people and debris from the frigid waters while friends provided comfort to the weary and hopeful with missing friends and family members. Concerned others supplied food and fire to nourish the warm and warm the workers and efforts to dredge the waters of the Ohio River were hampered by the murkiness of the winter's waters as well as the deep, persistent cold of the December air. Before the bridge collapsed, scores of area residents experienced a year-long barrage of paranormal phenomena, reports of UFO lights in the sky, and Mothman plagued the area for 13 months to the date, halting abruptly when the 39-year-old structure collapsed. During that period, witnesses discussed their experiences with police, Ohio Messenger correspondent Mary Heyer, and paranormal researchers John Keel and Gary Baker, each of whom has since published extensively on the topic. 
The anomalous activity and catastrophic bridge collapse each caused great emotional, physical, and psychological strain to the people of this otherwise idyllic Appalachian region. My guests tonight, Jackie and Bill Kusilis, are phenomenology research professionals investigating the correlations between post-traumatic growth and trauma across various disciplines. Authored and published Bridging the Tragedy, Silver Linings, in the mysterious Ohio River Valley is a psychological study based upon the 1967 Silver Bridge disaster that occurred in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and the Mothman experience as well. I want to welcome both of you to the show and, and ask you, which came first, the chicken or the edge, or the egg? I mean, were you drawn to Point Pleasant because of these, these events, or were you drawn to Point Pleasant because of the fact that it's a beautiful town. Well, Mothman. we had to go on vacation. Go ahead. Go ahead. Ah. <laughs> Mothman, Mothman took us to Point Pleasant, but the people of Point Pleasant keep us coming back. It, so. just, it, it, feel, it feels to me almost as though you were drawn there because there was something special there to learn to benefit you and to benefit humanity as well. Um, while, while these are both rather traumatic events, um, they're so very different, and yet they had impact on the people. And some of the, some of the interviews you did you know, you know, weren't, weren't right there at the collapse, but they, they had they had memory of the Mothman events, and then others had mem- memory of the Mothman events that were more profound than their experience of the trauma of the bridge, and yet all of them had some sort of traumatic remembrance of that particular event. So, I think so my, great my, news my, for everybody. Go, go ahead, Barbara. You know, my my what I'm what I'm aiming at here is that while this is a magnificent book as far as the research that went into it as far as the two events that were there you know if, if you're not if you're not fascinated by bridges falling and the trauma there then the the element of the mothman is is a draw to you too and yet because you both are researchers from from really different modalities you're coming at it from two different points of view and what i think a lot of people don't understand don't get when they initially read the book is that they're, they're, they're being reminded of the element and the fact that trauma in one's life has different benefits and not everybody has to go through this kind of trauma. Everybody has their own kind of trauma they can relate back to. John? Jackie. John, Bill, Bill. Bill. I'll get a name in here. <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, and again, thanks for having us, and, and we really appreciate the introduction, Barbara. I, um, you know, you asked us before what came first, the chicken or the egg, and really the whole Mothman thing was first for, for me. I really started researching it after I saw the movie way back 20 years ago, and then after several years of researching it and collecting all the information I could, <clears throat> Jackie said, look, we need to go on vacation. We haven't spent time away together for a while. Where would you like to go? And so I said Point Pleasant, and so we, we did the first Point Pleasant excursion back in 2016, so seven years ago now. And really, I mean, 
you mentioned that there was something going on that drew us there. And I think a lot of it was, at least for me, the connection that we were able to build with a lady by the name of Carolyn Harris on our very first visit. And she was so welcoming. She seemed like a family member. We spent time with her every day we were in town the first time. And um, she just really humanized the the entire Mothman Silver Bridge thing for us and, and just want, made us want to come back again and again. I think, I think a lot of the, the, the feeling that I got from a lot of these interviews that you did was, was more, you know, you asked each of them how it changed their lives. And for the most part, you know, you know, an uneasiness about going across a bridge, which I certainly can understand. But it felt to me as though all of them had an alteration into their perspective on life because of it. Jackie, did you feel that there was there was kind of a an a, a metaphysical feel to the whole experience for them? Um, I don't know. For, certainly for some of them, I would say yes. Um, but I, I can't say that for sure with all of them, but certainly for some of them, it definitely was metaphysical. Um, the area out there is just like so different anyway compared to where we live and um, the energy feels different out there than it does near Chicago. So um, they're probably just used to, you know, the West Virginia and Ohio type of energy and flow and life and things like that. But um, certainly, certainly with the interviews and talking with the people, they, they definitely were all changed by it. Well, it marked it marked a period of time in their life. It's sort of like, you know, when people get married, they remember certain aspects of that. When people have children, that's another time frame that that sort of cuts a notch in the time frame, so that they can go back to it. And that's that. This time frame in '67 is is a time where most people can get get drawn right back into it. It felt like a lot of them had an emotional feeling going back and reliving those particular times. You know, when we were doing the interviews, we had several people um, start weeping, some of them crying. Um, it, was, it was incredibly emotional, and it brought up other, other emotional events, other traumas in their life that they held the same type of... Um, the same type of trauma, I guess, is what you would call it, because it, it was it wasn't you know it was just especially Rick Hanley with his um, cr- the crash at honey, what's the name of that college? What's um, Virginia? He attended the university Marshall. in Huntington. Yeah, the Marshall uh-huh. University, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. so I mean, he, he like kind of linked it together in his brain, but hadn't even realized that until during the interview. Which well, is I think, very you know, the one thing that, that 
I kept feeling um, a link to. Now, 67, my son was born, and while that was a major <laughs> trauma in my life, um, it didn't have the same feeling. But when the more I read, the more I realized that this it had the same feeling that I had when uh, 9-11 happened, that, that while I wasn't personally involved in it, I was traumatized by it, and so it it had a, it was a moment in my life when when there's a sense of major things are happening here, and and it changes you because you suddenly have a different perspective on life, and even though it, it isn't you know something you have to get well not a lot of well I didn't have to get counseling for it, but I recognized going back to that time frame, going back to that experience, that it changed my life. It changed how I looked at things. It changed how I, how I approach certain aspects of my life because of what happened. So that, like I said earlier, that, that this is going to be a reminder for most people to remember times in their life when there was a traumatic event and how did we deal with it and how did it change us. And, and, you know, that to me was one of the most important things that I got out of the book, that, that trauma touches your life and changes your life, sometimes in small ways and sometimes in large ways. But it, it does change our lives. And the more we appreciate the change, the more we can benefit from, from the, the good things that come from it. And certainly one of the things that, that came out of this was how the whole town got together and the whole town take, took care of each other and the whole, ta- the whole town were, were more supportive of each other probably than they had been before to a great degree. And, and, and then you pull Mothman into it, which mm-hmm. was phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was almost as though, you know, in, in a way... You have um, an interdimensional traveler, let's call it, um, who came to a visit, and you never know really why he was there because this this event happened, and he he either ducked out and said that's too violent, I don't want to go there, or I really picked the wrong time to visit, and and <laughs> you know you because because I think that that there was great potential there for the Mothman to have become um, another way of, of growing and learning and, and dealing with with something that is from out of this world. And it, to me, it wasn't frightening. It was unusual and startling, but it wasn't frightening. I think to some of the people it was very frightening, and I think the movie played that up, I think, to a great degree, which was, you know, they called him the Birdman. They, they really... In, in reality, they weren't really frightened by him. They, they were trying to find him. They went searching for him. So, so it wasn't as frightening as the, uh, as the movie makes it out to be, I don't think, John, uh, Bill. Why do I want to call you John? Uh, maybe because familiar. John Keel wrote the Mothman prophecies and you just watched the movie. <laughs> ah, that, well, that, that easily could be. That could be it. But, that could be it. But, well, I was going to you, comment, you, Barbara. You'd you'd mentioned yeah. you'd mentioned about nine uh, eleven and the Silver Bridge disaster, and there were at least a couple of people. Uh, Susan Sayer, who works for Jeff Wamsley at the 
Mothman Museum and chain of stores there in Point Pleasant, as well as Linda Lane, who lives across the river on the Ohio side in Gallipolis, Ohio. They both referred to when 9-11 hit, there were correlations between the way they felt when the bridge went down, that it was a similar thing, and it just evoked that sense of, of trauma once again. And as Jackie was talking about, Rick Handley had talked about multiple sources of trauma in his life, and he had discussed the Marshall University plane crash, as well as uh, Denny Bellamy brought up the Marshall University plane crash, and Jimmy Wedge talked about it as well. I want to say close to half of the people that we interviewed not, not didn't necessarily have the Marshall University crash combined with the, the Silver Bridge, but they did discuss both things. Hmm. Well, when you look at it, I mean, this. I think this book is, is may uh, have everybody stop and think and reflect back on traumas in their life and I mean, you, you bring the, the term uh, post-traumatic growth um, is a term I had never heard until your book. And I, I taught school, so, you know, I had the post-traumatic stress syndrome was something I was familiar with. But, but because of the work that I've done, um, I have realized, come to realize that, that, that major traumas in your life have the potential for turning you in a direction that is far more beneficial to you. And most traumas have, have the potential for being a very positive, you know, it's kind of like such great things came out of this. It had, it's too bad it had to come from a bad experience. But sometimes a bad experience is what catches your attention, and that's where the growth comes in. But I, I just, I, 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 was so taken with the fact that that it finally had a name and letters so that so that you know the, you're studying it is 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 this a term or a phrase or whatever that that has come out of post-traumatic stress did it has it come out lately or or is this something that's always been there and just not been paid attention to well, post-traumatic growth um, was a phrase that was coined by a couple of University of North Carolina professors, uh, Richard Tadishi and Lawrence Calhoun, about 20, 25 years ago. And really, it's an offshoot of the positive psychology movement. So positive psychology is it's a practice for, for folks who aren't familiar with that term, but it's, it focuses on the things that go right in life instead of the things that go wrong. Traditional psychology has all worked to remedy, you know, the, the mental illnesses that are out there and, you know, alcoholism and, and depression and anxiety and things like that. Whereas instead of coming into a practice to help remediate some of those negative things, it helps, positive psychology helps people to focus upon areas of strength and then grow from that point forward. So it's just a matter of like improvement, self-improvement or community improvement or what have you. So post-traumatic growth as a practice and as a, as a construct really is wrapped around the idea of let's, let's get people to look at traumas that happen. Obviously, the Silver Bridge collapse was a very traumatic event. 46 lives were 
were lost, you know, in, in this horrible thing that happened back in the in the '60s. But let's let's take a look and let's ask questions about what good might have come of this. And you try to do that with questions that really encourage a conversation, not questions that have an answer in mind, so to speak, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I mean, I had a car accident that enabled me to, to, to be in this field full time. At the time of the car accident, it didn't feel real positive. But given a year's time and realizing, you know, how I had to change my life was was a gift. And, uh, you know, I lost a car. But aside from that, I gained a career. So, and I think a lot of people um, who who have traumas in their life, if if they can find the positive that that is growing out of the experience, it it makes you process the whole thing so very differently, and it does change your your perspective on life. And and I think it's the same feeling you get from. Um, near-death experiences, it's the same feeling that you get from um, all sorts of paranormal experiences. And, and you know, Jackie, as far as the Mothman goes, did you find any of the people that you interviewed that they were frightened of the Mothman, or were they more or less curious? I don't recall anyone saying they were frightened by the Mothman. As a matter of fact, Andy Colvin was around eight years old, and he actually saw Mothman flying behind the family car when they were on their way to the bowling alley one evening. And um, then there was the talk of Mothman because it was seen in Clandennan, which is just a suburb of Charleston because Andy was from North Charleston. And... um, there was a, a sighting there before Point Pleasant. So he was hearing talks about this. And so him and his friend Tommy thought that Moth, Mothman, the bird, the flying bird, the creature, um, was a superhero. So, <laughs> you know, no, nobody, nobody seemed to be afraid of it. There was concern by what it may do, um, there were people that were out in the TNT area where it was first seen in Point Pleasant, which is uh, an old abandoned emissions plant from the, from World War II. But um, they they would go out there with their guns and they asked questions. According to Denny Bellamy, there were two questions. One, if we see it, can we shoot it? And if there are two, can we shoot two? <laughs> so they they they. There was just, it was like it was uh, there was fear in the town, not knowing what it was, but uh-huh. there was no no one was being injured by it. It wasn't attacking people, so most people wanted to see if they could see it. Just like when you hear of a UFO sighting, people want to go to that spot. Can I see it? Or you know, just different anything that's unusual, people tend to want to go to and see if they can see it too. So, yeah, and, and you yeah. know, they, you said that they were there were reports of UFOs and lights in the sky, as well as the Mothman. And I, I have a philosophy. Um, <clears throat> it's unprofessional, but it's my philosophy that that people who see UFOs and lights in the sky and things like Mothman and and such that that there's a level of 
awareness inside of them that is familiar and comfortable with it, that they are at a place of awareness where having something different be, be approachable, that it's okay. And, and I, I have found that, that um, I had a, 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 a UFO landed on my campus when I was in college, and we were in the dorm and we saw the stadium lights go on and the UFO take off, and I was in a group of maybe 15 or 20 girls who were hanging out of the window. And some some ran screaming, some hid in closets, some decided to go home, and some didn't see it. And I saw it, and all I could think of was, that is so cool, I want to know more. And that mm-hmm. experience changed my life forever. And And so I think there's a level of awareness, that, and it's different in everybody, that that if they're ready to take take in another level of understanding then then they will they will embrace it or 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 search it or go look for it and and so that there's and it has nothing to do with intelligence it has to do with awareness so that so that you know when you when you were talking about all of these different occurrences it was sort of like i kind of feel like a lot of this stuff is out there all the time and it's just a matter of being open to being aware of it, that, that, you know, it's not a scary thing. But when you don't understand something, when you, when you are fearful, then, then that fear slams your door shut and there's no understanding. So, so the fact that there was the UFOs and the lights in the sky does not surprise me at all that another form of um, challenge to our awareness would would come in and and a lot of at least in the movie you know the there was there was talking to it and and I don't know if I I don't recall in the book that that there was any anybody communicating with it that way was there Jackie um not not you mean talking to Mothman is yeah. that what you're asking uh no one was talking to Mothman but Andy did um, he he built a shrine to Mothman? And when I interviewed him, I asked him what he had in a shrine because I said going back and trying to think because Andy's just a little bit older than I am, and I said I'd have to try to think what I would try to do to bring in some type of um, alien or entity or whatever Mothman was, and. What what would an eight or nine year old kid do? And he said, "Well, he was pretty sure that him and Tommy had used some creepy crawlers and some shrinky dinks, the shrinking heads, and that kind of stuff." <laughs> and they yeah. put those all outside of a tool shed. So it they weren't like talking to Mothman, but they were trying to get him to come to see him, see them. Yeah. Well, which is interesting. Uh, you know, which is, yeah, fascinating. I mean, yeah. and and of course, the younger the younger the children are, the less they have fear of the unknown. So that that would make great sense. It just it feels to me as though while the two events, I don't think have anything in common. They they did people were experiencing trauma um, from a different form. And and it, it it the whole the whole book comes down to how do you respond to trauma, 
and what are the benefits that you can get from it. But, I mean, it, it was, I mean, the collapse of the bridge in my head when I was reading about it, um, it was very, I mean, the movie did it justice for sure. And and seeing the packages, the Christmas packages floating down the river, um, that was, that was, that was heartbreaking. So, you know, there, there's a great deal to be said for um, what you can do graphically. You know, my head didn't see it that way, but the movie certainly did. But it, it, to me, it was a very exciting project that the two of you took on. And are you, you know, are you expanding on, on the um, premise of uh, post-traumatic post growth? Are you going further into that in research, Bill? We really are going to. Yeah, we really are going to. It's uh, it's a passion, I think, for the both of us, although I think throughout our lives we've not really necessarily identified the concept of post-traumatic growth until I was able to study it during during some of my, my graduate work. And then I, I was able to put a name with, I think, some of the things that We've, we've witnessed, you know, in our communities and through our families and friendships that it seems that the people who are the toughest and the most compassionate and the strongest and the people you really look up to are the ones who have been able to transition through something really, really challenging. And uh, I, when, we, when we were able to take the time and couple our passion for the community of Point Pleasant and our fascination with the concept of Mothman, and then be able to attach some of the research that I had done previously <clears throat> and understanding, learning more about concept of post-traumatic growth as you attach that to Point Pleasant, it was natural. And so for us, we've decided that we have another project that's going to be kicked off. We were going to start it late last year, early this year, but we, we had uh, another traumatic event happen within our lives. I, I had a se- severe back injury that set us back about six months in starting off our next project. But the next book is going to be a study into paranormal phenomena and the relationship of paranormal phenomena in general with trauma. And to answer your question from a few minutes ago, is it the chicken that comes first or is it the egg? Does the trauma beget the paranormal phenomena or does the paranormal phenomena beget the trauma? And then for people who have been through trauma and paranormal experiences, what kind of post-traumatic growth have they been able to experience as a result of going through that trauma? So yeah, we are going to, we're going to continue down that path for our next project. I mean, it's, it's fascinating when you listen to how people have, have uh, grown from, from horrific um, experiences that we talked earlier today about, uh, a, a surgeon that survived the Hiroshima bomb and he had been he was a surgeon and he was losing his eyesight which meant he could no longer practice medicine so he was in a deep deep depression and basically had given up on everything when the bomb went off uh, he survived the blast and the radiation from the bomb cured his eyes so he was given a gift that actually his eyes were even better after the bomb. And, and you know, he, he talked about how it, it's, 
it's it's not the cure he would have asked for, but it, it it came to him, and he was able to then then get up out of his bed and start to help people that had been caught in in the radiation and everything else, so that he was able to immediately go back to work. Mm-hmm. So it it yeah there there, and and I think you know not that I'm recommending something quite that traumatic, but. You know, when we have traumatic things that happen in our lives, whether it's a divorce or a breakup or loss of a job or whatever, trauma itself is is the energy that pushes us in a new direction. And sometimes it was, you know, it's time for a big change and sometimes it's time for a little change. And the little changes we apparently can deal with ourselves. But, but when, when a big change or a shift is appropriate for our own evolution, it occurs. And we call it trauma. And and it does change our lives forever. And I think in many ways, if we look at it metaphysically, it's, it's I don't know, Jackie, what you feel about this, but, but if if we are being stubborn and not moving in a good direction in our lives, Oftentimes, the spirit within arranges situations that force us to move in a new direction because we haven't voluntarily made the changes. I mean, how do you feel about that, um, Jackie? Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with that. I I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I quite understand what you're saying, but what I'm thinking in my own life. Um, I went through a horrible divorce, a horrible divorce. This man terrorized me and my family for two or three years after I was divorced from him. And I think that maybe what you're saying is that because because I needed to move forward in a direction um, and I wasn't allowing myself to do that, that I put myself into a situation to marry a madman. <laughs> and I literally, <laughs> I, I, I grew so strong from going through all of the trauma that he put. I mean, he was literally, when stalking became a law in um, the county I lived in, he was the first stalking case for that county. So he just terrorized us. And I was scared. And then one day I woke up and I thought, you know, like I would go out every day and my tires would be flat and he would slice my tires. And I, I got up one day and uh-huh. I went out and I, I looked and my tires were flat. And instead of crying and going to buy more junk tires to put in my car, I felt sad. I felt sad for a person that had nothing better to do with their time than to try to hurt me. And I just kept getting uh-huh. stronger stronger spiritually emotionally and 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 emotional maturity is what i was gaining you know and um i think that maybe is that's what you were saying that we put ourselves into we allow ourselves metaphysically to put ourselves into situations that are going to grow us yeah not even not even realize well yeah no we don't realize that nobody would voluntarily create trauma in their life but (laughs) And, you know, every now and then, every now and then something occurs and it's like, okay, I need to change, but did it have to be this extreme? And apparently it did. And your book sent me to 
to my notebook and it was like, okay, what what are the areas that I would consider what I went through at the time a trauma? And I and I wrote down about ten of them, and then I wrote down what did I learn and how did I grow from this? And and I found that that in many in many cases trauma has put me in a position where I discovered new things about myself. I grew in new directions. I mean, I in college I was going to get married, have babies, and a white picket fence. And you know, the thought of doing what I do now, or having been married as many times as I have been, or any of the events that have happened, have always have always triggered a major change in my life that has always been a benefit to me. And and you know, sometimes it meant. You know, the trauma created a change that was uncomfortable, and yet in order to get out of that uncomfortable place, it it meant I grew and I became a better person, I think. And I can't, I can't, looking at all of the traumas that I listed, not a one of them took me down. All of them pushed me up. And and I think that that your your study of post-traumatic growth is fabulous because it's going to help people understand that, that you know, I, I don't know if, if we manipulate every situation, but, but, but from any trauma you go through, there's always a positive in it. And, and not, not initially discovered, certainly the death of a, of a spouse or a family member is, you know, you don't sit and you think, well, this is trauma, but I'll grow from this. But, but when you when you think of um, people who have lost children, many of them have taken that ex- that experience and created um, organizations that help other other parents going through the same thing, or they've created organizations that is that, that brings understanding and money often into into areas that 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 need to have that kind of exploration or investigation, so that. I mean, I'm not a Pollyanna, but I do think there's a positive in anything and everything. And I think your book is so good because, you know, you 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 interview all of these quote unquote normal people who have been through this abnor this this horrible experience, and and basically there there is a, a flow of energy that shows that they they maybe not in a major way, but that that they, it has changed their life. It is it is done something to them so that they are in a better place than than they ever had been before and i mean bill did you find anybody who who went downhill after this experience no no nobody nobody went backwards and it was interesting the people that we interviewed at the time of the silver bridge disaster um, they, their ages ranged from the youngest, who was Jeff Wamsley, who owns and operates the Mothman Museum today and is the co-founder of the Mothman Festival. Uh, he was six years old, so he was just a little guy. Jimmy Wedge was the oldest at the time, and he was 25 years old. Jimmy is the gentleman who uh, lost both of his parents in the bridge disaster, and I would say the two of them um, have been very, very successful in their lives uh, as a result of being right there. And Jimmy actually lost both his mom and his dad in the bridge disaster. So 
one of the things he looked back on was how grateful he was that he was 25 years old when that happened because he felt that for a younger person, say a 15-year-old, it would have been absolutely devastating to lose both of his mom and dad. But he said that he was able to learn enough from them during his first 25 years in life, and now he's in his early 80s, but he's been able to be successful in all kinds of different things. He has three successful children. He's He's been in the government. He was the mayor of Point Pleasant at one point and a legislator through the West Virginia Congress for many years and, and a lobbyist, and he's just done all kinds of really neat things. And then Jeff, of course, runs the Mothman Empire, so he's done quite well as a result of uh-huh. having been there and, and dealt with what happened in his community even as a little kid. Well, now, Point Pleasant, after the tragedy, um, because the traffic was no longer going through them, the town went downhill. And and yet now with the Mothman Festival, it it appears that that, that it's coming back uphill, so to speak. In other words, the Mothman Festival brings in thousands of people and, and you know, visitors. And the, the whole <clears throat> Mothman experience is, is, is revitalizing it, the town. At least that's what it seems. So, in a way, the tragedies have created uh, a, a, an income for the town that, that wasn't there immediately after the collapse of the bridge, but Mothman has helped to bring it back to life again. I, Bill, is that close? I mean, it's, I mean, it just feels like the the tragedy is now becoming a money maker for the town. Well, during our conversation with Susan Sayer, she basically acknowledged that, and that was the fact that you know, with Mothman being what it was and what it wasn't, and we could go all kinds of different directions with that. But th- what she landed on was that Mothman seemed to have saved Point Pleasant. Because like you said, now, after that bridge was placed so that all the traffic from the east and the west that used to go right through downtown Point Pleasant and help their businesses really thrive, since it was placed on the outskirts of town, people bypassed the town entirely. And for the next 50 years, the town really went out down the tubes. But with the Mothman Prophecies movie being released in 2002 and the festivals kicking off shortly after that happened. Now it's crazy how many people come to town. And when we first started going to Point Pleasant back in 2016, there were, there were quiet times of year. I mean, you'd always have people that would come from out of town to, to visit pretty much every day of the year. But we've noticed the last year or two that we've been in town there's not really any downtime there. We were there about six weeks ago, and the streets were pretty, pretty busy for July, and we had not seen that in years past. So absolutely, the town is beginning to thrive. Is it what it was before the, the bridge disaster? I don't think it's quite there yet, but I think in another 10 years, it's going to surpass that. Well, it was a peaceful, quiet town beforehand, and now you have the excitement of, Mothman. I mean, you know, where where the the bridge collapsing certainly was horrible, but the fact that they didn't build the the bridge back again, they took it um, farther north, I think, so that so that it 
was more in line with the high, main highway or, or or something. But it just it yeah, I think Mothman has definitely saved the town, and I don't think that was his intent. I mean, <laughs> I I don't think Mothman was initially there to save the town, but that seems to have been what has happened. Um, it's it, you know you, when you talk about haunted places and things like that. You know, it, well, while it is a fascination for some, he, Mothman isn't haunting there. It's just, it's just a paranormal experience that some people had. And, and is, I'm not sure, I, I know the TNT is where there was a munitions place. Um, has, has there ever been any speculation that perhaps that that, that energy may have drawn in the energy of Mothman? In, in Andy Colvin's research, absolutely. Andy is one of the guys that we interviewed for the book. Jackie's talked about him a little bit. And what Andy has done is he's gone out and he's collected all kinds of John Keel's lost magazine articles that were published in Fate Magazine and Saga Magazine back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, et cetera, et cetera. But he has long speculated that what was going on in the TNT area was really bringing Mothman or Mothman energy or whatever you want to call that to Point Pleasant. And he has always seen it as John Keel did as well as a protector deity or like a crime fighting type of a thing. Like Jackie had talked about a superhero who was seeing something going on that's wrong. You know, we talked about the, the bomb and Barb, we didn't talk about this before, but and this didn't even occur to me until you started talking about this. But when the munitions factory was going on out there at TNT area, the people didn't know what they were building the TNT for, but right after we bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they shut it down. So that is exactly what they were doing there in that facility, was creating munitions for the Japan, the Japan affair. Wow. Well, I, I and, and the book that, you know, we were talking about is The Last Train from Hiroshima. Um <clears throat> which is uh, by Charlie Pellegrino, and it's a fabulous book. And like I said to you, if, if, if you only read one book your entire life, read that one, because you will, it will change your life forever. But my thought on it is, is that, and, and of course, I come from the metaphysical background, but my feeling is that, that a portal was opened. And I don't know, Jackie, if you deal with that kind of stuff but it felt to me as though a portal was opened there and Mothman was able to come through from another dimension and um, after being there for a while it decided not to come back but I think that portal is still open. Uh, Jackie do you have any feeling on something like that? Um, yeah John Keel actually talked about that. He, thought, he called them windows but I agree with that. I think that there are different portal areas all over the world. And I think okay. Point Pleasant very easily could be one. As a matter of fact, I think the TNT area is probably um, where it's located. And, um, I mean, there, there's still activity out there. There's still sightings of Mothman. There are still, uh, I don't know if you want to call them UFO sightings, but um one of, the, one of the, Susan, I think it was, Susan Sayer, said that people that live out by the TNT literally will be driving their car and have the car just stop. Just, I mean, not 
I mean, it shuts itself off, and yeah, they'll start it back up, and it'll take off again. I was out there filming big birds. Bill was on the phone talking with somebody when we were out there doing some research, and I was filming these big uh, birds up in the sky. And um, when we got back to the hotel, all of the recordings that I had taken from the day, I would download into files into my laptop, and I was I was watching this specific one. Um, I noticed this plasma ball that was in the sky, and then there was like a little white light that was down closer to the treetop, and this plasma ball just kind of moved down, and when it hit the white light, it disappeared. And it was really strange because Bill had hung up. One of our friends that was with us, um, he got off the phone, and I just finished, I just shut off my video camera, and this was like right around the time that all of this happened. Um, but we saw like a spectrum come up from behind the trees. Like if the sun were coming through the clouds and it would be a spectrum coming down onto the earth, it was coming up Mm -hmm. and we were all snapping pictures. I did not see the plasma ball while I was filming. I was watching the birds. So there's there's something that was very strange that was going on out in the TNT area. That was sent to three different MUFON investigators and nobody could tell me what it was. So I, I do believe that. I know for like 99.9% sure that this area in North Charleston where Harriet Plumbrook and Andy Colvin grew up, there's a vortex and, and or a portal or a window, whatever you want to call it. It's still open. We have the most insane spirit box sessions when we go there. The energy is off the charts. The electrical energy is off the charts. Um, All up and down the Ohio River Valley, the energy is off the charts. There's a lot of haunting stuff. We went to a haunted dance studio out there, and um, this this was in Gallup Police, Ohio. And there was, I mean, the EMF was getting a lot of hits. There was whatever was coming through into the spirit box. We had two people listening to Spirit Box with, and with their noise-canceling headphones, and one, you know, one was answering, the other one was answering, finishing the, finishing their answers, and you know, some me and another lady were asking the questions because there was like literally an orb following a little boy around the dance studio, and um, she's like, "We just want to know what to call it. We just want to know because it plays with the TV." <laughs> Plays with the VHS player. So, yeah, I truly believe that there is some type of portal in that area. It, it's, it's, the plasma balls especially um, have been around when, whenever, um, I, I believe, whenever there is a portal. And that's why you see the plasma balls by crop circles. And that's why the Hudson Valley had the plasma balls, um, oh, I can't even tell you how long ago it was, but, but the Hudson Valley had a, a, an amazing number of UFO sightings, but the plasma balls were there, especially around the uh, nuclear plant that's on the Hudson River. And so the plasma balls are, are usually a precursor to, in my mind, to the fact that there is a portal there and it's opening up and and stuff is slipping through. So that's that's what, you know, you triggers me in saying there's a portal here. On top of the fact that I don't know um 
if you have ever seen any um, ground-penetrating radar of the TNT, but there, it appears that there may be um, tunnels underneath it, a lot of tunnels, and those tunnels mm-hmm. also probably has something to do with the fact that there's a portal there. And, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's not a scary thing. It's a portal. And, you know, interesting stuff can happen if you're dealing with that kind of energy. And so I think while the Mothman Festival is certainly going to draw a lot of people, I would imagine that the TNT plant is certainly going to draw more attention as well. So who owns the TNT plant now? Do you have any idea? Well, it's it's called the McClintic Wildlife Preserve at this point, and ah. I guess i I've heard I've heard a couple of different things. I, that kind of makes me think that it's like a, a government facility or part of the state of West Virginia or what have you. But didn't didn't Andy tell us that that's owned by like the Rockefellers? No, he said that it's owned by the same people that. I don't remember what he said, but it had something to do with, gosh darn, I can't remember, something something to do with what we were looking into in Louisiana, but I don't know. I've got books of notes, books. <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt it. <laughs> yeah. I, I do, I, I do I think... remember. Go ahead, Barbara. No, oh no, you go ahead. Much rather than well, I was going to say, I, I know both Denny Bellamy and Andy Colvin have kind of indicated to us that there is a relationship that exists between Roswell, New Mexico, and Point Pleasant, West Virginia, as well as Area 51. And so I've heard uh-huh. that some of the architects of each one of the facilities in, in those areas that they were part of the same business units or so on. So the same people are involved with them. Does that sound right, dear? I, I'm trying to remember exactly specifically what they told us. Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not positive on that, so I can't confirm or deny. <laughs> well, I'm, I am, I am fascinatingly drawn to any area that has any sort of tunnels underneath it. And I've, I've done remote viewing. And so, it's it's sort of like when when you when you see something like that, you know something's there, and, and you know in some way it is it is um, it is created that that void that becomes a portal, and you just wonder, you know, what else is going to come through? I don't think bad things are going to come through. I think every now and then. Um, you know, when you have a crack in the sidewalk, plants grow out of it, and it's it's as though they're invading through a crack in time. So that you know, sometimes you have some sometimes you have time folds. Sometimes you have um, things that that is an overlap with another time zone as well. Uh, not time zone, but another time frame. And so, I, I think that you know, the TNT plant is definitely a place of fascination and. You know, at some point in time, you may you may find that that it becomes more and more not not more than Mothman because I don't think it can top Mothman. But but I would say that the TNT plant is is in and of itself another area that can be expanded upon as far as research goes and and understanding what it is that's there. I know they said that because of the what was going on in the plant that they. Somebody said, you know, you don't eat the fish coming out of that river. 
because mm-hmm. of the the radiation mm-hmm. and the, the that there were. Now th- there was one thing that that I I, re- I just remember a four legged deer, uh, an eight legged deer. So somebody yeah. said there were mutations. That was Susan. That was Susan Sayer. She said there was nothing to find an eight legged deer or a, or a fish with like two heads. I think is that I think that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was again, gonna, I was going to kind of elaborate, Barbara. I was going to elaborate on the tunnel thing because Denny Bellamy told us about the tunnels below the TNT area, and Andy Colvin speculates that he thinks that those tunnels might extend all the way from under the TNT area. 60 miles up the Kanawha River to Charleston, because that's where the, a lot of the phenomena was manifesting. It's not reported on so much. Uh, Point Pleasant's always considered the microcosm of where Mothman was, but there were a lot of sightings also in Charleston, which is 60 miles up the, up the Kanawha River from Point Pleasant. It would be interesting if you could take the sightings and put them on a map and then equate them to whatever tunnels are there. Yeah. Ooh, that would be interesting. Because I would, I would, I would almost bet that 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 there is a line of of correlation between the two, because whatever is seeping up from the tunnel system is creating an atmosphere for for other things to have the potential. To, if you have your your anomalies physically, then then I would say that there's obviously enough energy for something to flow in and up through those. And I think that, that we experienced that um, in the Hudson River um, elements with, where, the, um, where the power plant was and the sightings traveled right up the Hudson River or down the Hudson River, up, up the Hudson River. Um, and, and you could see how they were all gathered right around the Hudson River where the water was flowing. So um, I, I think there is a, a correlation. I, I'm not exactly positive how one would trace it, but uh, the spottings, especially with MUFON, usually do cluster in straight lines. Um, so that I know there's a tunnel system underneath us, and I know it's down hundreds, there, there are tunnels down hundreds of miles underneath us. So that um, whether it's from another civilization, another time frame, another, you know, if you if you go the age of the yugas and stuff like that, I think that that we are honeycombed. The planet is honeycombed so deep down that it hasn't been noticed yet. But I do believe that some of them do have active portals that are within them, which which would be fascinating to look into. There's another interesting aspect of the TNT area that we haven't talked about. And going back to our first trip to Point Pleasant when we met Carolyn Harris at her her cafe, uh, we met Mark Griffith. And Mark Griffith was the first interview in in our book. When we met Mark, uh, a couple nights later, there was a lady who was also working at the restaurant, and her name was Lynn Robinson. Now, when we first pulled up to the restaurant that night, we noticed a little car was sitting in front of the restaurant and it said Cornstalk on the license plate. And for, for those who aren't familiar with the Cornstalk aspect of the Mothman um, story, that there was a, a chief Cornstalk back in the late 1700s 
who was holding off more of the white settlers' advances across the Ohio River and into into Ohio. They were holding the settlers back, and during a skirmish, uh, he actually was he went to go like a negotiate peace with the settlers and they, they took him prisoner because there was another battle that took place where a, a couple guys got into a, a gunfight and two, two white settlers were killed. So the people at the encampment basically were really furious and there was a lot of heavy drinking going on and they took Cornstalk and his son and another gentleman who was with them prisoner. And then they were basically murdered at point blank range a couple days later now, as legend has it, he cursed he cursed the land, or that's what the legend says, and he cursed the land and said, Point Pleasant will not prosper for the next 200 years. Now, um, we've kind of come to believe this is a myth, and we've got some, some good proof behind that, too, that was shared with us by Denny Bellamy when we interviewed him. But the long, long story short, uh, Lynn basically told us on our first trip that when you go out to the TNT area, bring a peace gift with you. And she, she handed me a box of cigarettes with a couple of cigarettes in them. She, she basically took the tobacco and put it into the bottom of the box and, and had me go out there with the box. And when we arrived at the TNT area, she said, offer peace and do, do a sprinkle of tobacco to the east and in the north and then the west and then the south because you're standing on hallowed ground. Out there at the TNT area, there are three communal graves of native natives who were buried there, you know, they were basically thrown into this, this burial ground. And then the TNT area was built above that. So here we have the native American element of people who were wronged and massacred below this area where now we're building munitions for a war effort, which is going to massacre people and did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But um, there's that piece of the whole, the whole story as well. Yeah, that's that's fascinating because I I, I was I wondered because a number of times I saw the the chief cornstalk and I I wasn't sure where that that story came in because they mentioned it but I I don't believe in the book you explained it so you know it was kind of like okay so what does this have to do with it but that would now were were there mounds there I I do I I. I, I know you mentioned they they mentioned mount yeah they, you did mention mounds in the book so um, are are they were they did they actually destroy the mounds when they built the plant? I don't know that there were mounds in the plant area per se, but I do know that all the way up and down the Kanawha River there were burial mounds which have been leveled. So that's another another thing that's happened over the years, too, due to industry, that these burial grounds have been desecrated up and down the river as well. Well, and, and yeah, the, the, yeah, well, and, you know, you don't play around with, with the, the Native American um, spiritual stuff because that's some powerful stuff there. Um, it, there's great validity to it. Now, I, you know, I'm not sure about curses and stuff like that, but... But I do know that they had such a uh, connection to the land that the land absorbs that connection, and in a in a way, the land may react to it. So uh, you know that that very well could have something to do with some of it. But you know when I when I when I looked at at 
you know, the TNT plant, and I, I, I was so impressed with the fact that, you know, that was an area that people were drawn to, naturally. Well, for for necking and stuff like that, but, but, but you know, it was a a, a piece of property that had been sitting and waiting. And my feeling was that a portal opened and, and Mothman came through. Um, did any was was there any indication that he came from? Um, I, I guess I'm looking from. He, did, there was no nest or no place where they could see that 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 Mothman actually, you know, had been there. Or there's no evidence of his taking it up habitation. It was just that Mothman appeared and then disappeared. Is that correct, Jackie? That is go ahead. Yeah, yeah. There there are no there was no physical evidence of Mothman other than some scratches on Roger Scarberry's car. There was the first the first two couples that reported Mothman and Mothman chased them back into town flying up over speeds of 100 miles an hour. Um, so there was nothing, there was no feces found, there were no footprints found, nothing like that. Um, but I, I, I guess that's what, I guess that answered your question. Um, yeah. Well, but, it's the same type of of, of um, thing that, the, that you would, you get with, with, Bigfoot and and um, the Yeti that that they've not found any place of habitation and yet they exist and again another element of coming through a portal I believe so yeah. that's very exciting uh, that, yeah. that you know and it and it does appear have you ever taken um, your box out there and and sort of tried to see if anybody was there. Um, to get EVPs or anything like that in that area? Not in the TNT, we did not. Um, we were going to, but we ended up going. I, 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 I changed it up at the last minute when we were doing that. I said something about we should go to um, Mound, West Virginia, where Andy and Harriet grew up and do a ghost box session there. So... We did not do it in the TNT area, and I, I don't, I don't know that we would never do that. I think that I was probably a little more fascinated to find out what was going on in, it's, it's North Charleston now, but I was more fascinated to find out what was going on in Mound because on the same street that they were raised, um, there was all kinds of weird stuff happening back in the 60s and two of the things two of the people that lived on that street as well was charles manson when he was a young boy um i think he was like from ages eight to ten or something and um gosh i can't think of the name now it's, it's what's what's the name honey that sarah um, jane moore the, the lady who yeah. uh, attempted to assassinate president ford yeah yeah i can so, understand that yeah, but there or, are a lot of people testing in the TNT area. So people are finding, you know, all kinds of different stuff out there. But I don't, I'd, I'd be interested. The, the, I'd be interested in the ghost box. I'd also be interested in if there was any um, sounds or noises that you picked up um, EVP-wise or, or on the ghost box because 
that would have something to do with frequency of other dimensions as well. Yeah. So that could be really fascinating. That would <laughs> that would <laughs> It may not be another book, but it would be fascinating. <laughs> just just to have it with uh-huh. the rest of the <laughs> Well, what fun it would be. I mean, you know, I I think when you have stuff like this, it does become an adventure, and it's it's not anything to be frightened by. I mean, the uh, recently there's a lot of material coming through channels and 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 situations like the Rendlesham Forest where um, the guy touched the, the the drone that came through, and it turned out to be. Um, binary code and when they translated it they found it actually came from the from um 8100 um so it came from the future so i think that there's a lot of potential for getting good information you, you know you obviously would have to be careful about who you were using but um it feels to me as though we are at a point in time here where where um sensitive material is coming through in unusual and unique places and how cool to have to have the potential for the opening of, of tapping into just one of them. Yeah. Jackie, I'm sorry. I keep, keep forgetting there are two of you. Um, <laughs> sorry, Bill. <laughs> but, you know, obviously you know where my fascination is. But, um, but you know, when it comes to to the element of trauma when it comes to the element of of having something horrible happen in your life. I think your your book in many ways emphasizes the fact that you can take a situation that is frightening or upsetting or life-changing and you can find that, that the positive energy that comes from it ultimately is of such benefit to you that it, it was worth the experience. Bill, do you, do you, you know kind of flow along with that because I I can't remember anybody that has come to me with a trauma that that we haven't been able to find such wonderful material from that it benefits their lives. So is is this a... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, the thing is how we've already broached the topic of of marriage and more marriages than one. Um, My my initial research into post-traumatic growth um, when I was working on dissertation was supposed to be um, investigating post-traumatic growth as it related to a major life crisis. And as I was going through and getting the approval milestones done to be able to do the research around that topic, everybody blessed that until we got to my committee, the, the dreaded committee. And even my yeah. dissertation chairperson was in favor of it, but my two committee members said, ah, that's not specific enough. And so we fought them on that. <laughs> when I say we, I mean yeah. my dissertation mentor and, and I fought them on that, but the committee always wins. And so they made me basically focus on the dimensions of post-traumatic growth as they resulted to the divorce process. And I had been through a very long divorce that lasted six and a half years with, with no kids and no real estate. So it was just a really insane process. And every time I thought that we were going to get things wrapped up, then there was another curveball that was thrown. And to, to not get too far into the weeds with that, um, when I finally got my research plan blessed, 
I interviewed nine guys, and they were guys who had all gone through the divorce process in either their late 30s or their early 40s, and we interviewed all of them. And really, to a man, they all said, you know, I've never stopped and thought about what good has come out of this, but look at this. You know, I have a new appreciation for relationships. I have a, a great uh, – I, I have a better way of relating to my current wife than, than my previous wife and, and all these different things. One guy didn't really seem to experience a lot of post-traumatic growth from going through the divorce process, but he really appreciated the fact that, that we did the interview with him. And he said, you know, it feels really good to talk about this. Thanks for having me part of your study. And, and that worked out really well, too. So, I mean, we can look at any kind, I think, of a trauma. And I think that that's one of the things about the book that's I'm really grateful for it is that it really is universal. It doesn't just apply to the paranormal. It doesn't just apply to the silver bridge disaster. It can, it can be with respect to any kind of trauma, because I think trauma is a lot like it it can, it can help us in ways like, like muscle memory does. You know, I I can't lift a hundred pounds before I can lift 50 pounds, but it's going to hurt lifting those 50 pounds. And then from that point, I'm going to be able to grow to do 60 pounds and then that's going to hurt, but that pain is going to ultimately get me to a different level, and and I think that that's just a universal concept that can go across so many different areas. Well, yeah, I mean, you have near-death experience as well, which, you know, there's been a lot of documentation on, but, um, but again, most people who have had a near-death experience have changed their attitude and philosophy of life. I would say 99% of them. Um, I interviewed a lot of people who had had a near-death experience for a radio show I did with my late husband. And um, to a one, they all came, you know, they they ultimately said, you know, it it changed their perspective, it changed their view of life, it changed everything. And I think it's, it's a part of our life. Everybody looks upon things differently. Everybody's definition of trauma is is probably different in relation to their own life. Um, you know, I, I've had some good ones, but I know people whose biggest trauma was a broken fingernail, but but it impacted them greatly and it did make changes. I mean, so so, you know, no matter what the change is for that particular person's journey through this lifetime, it changed the way they lived their life, and and I think that that you know you have that with the town of Point Pleasant. They they tried to cope. They didn't you know they lost a lot of people through the collapse, and then they lost businesses. And yet now it's beginning to build up so so that um, by land, you know, <laughs> I mean it, it it just feels as though. It's a place where things are beginning to happen, and in a way, something that felt like a curse turns into a blessing. And I think if everybody has that attitude that no matter how diff- difficult a trauma is, that at some point in time you're going to reflect back on it and see how it changed your life for a b- for better. Um, you know that. You know that's my perspective of it. But but then, you know, I, I've had the good fortune to have had bunches of traumas that all changed my life for better. So I think it makes you view life um, with a greater, a broader perspective, a deeper perspective maybe, and feel blessed that you've had a lot of traumas. That means that you were really able to grow and, and you know, 
forge ahead in giant steps this lifetime as opposed to just just having a plain lifetime where nothing trauma traumatic happens to you. So I, I think this book is wonderful in that it will make people think about trauma in their own lives, and, and I don't know if that was the intent, but it certainly is how I would view it after reading it. What do you th- what do you think, Bill? Is that was that the intent, or was it just the intent just to put information out there and let people go their own way? Well, you know, I think as the research plan developed and as we worked on it and got engaged in the project and then interviewed the people, it really just took upon a life of its own. I mean, the book really kind of it wrote itself. And in interviewing the folks that we did and hearing their stories and just, I mean, really being a part of that, I don't know that we necessarily had a specific intention other than we wanted to focus on the good things that happened as a result of the Silver Bridge disaster and of the paranormal phenomena that happened in that area at that time. And it just it just kind of wrote itself. But I'm really grateful that it's something that I think that can be seen as, as universal and can be helpful to people in different areas. We had one gentleman who interviewed us several months ago, and he had said, hey, guys, I just want to tell you, this really impacted me because I went through a financially devastating thing in my life. He was in a car accident and his insurance didn't cover his medical bills and he had to go through court and he had to go through debt and he had to go through all kinds of different things. He said, you know what? Now I've been able to dig myself out. I've been able to finally get a settlement after, you know, going through all kinds of financial hardships. He said, and I wouldn't have the strength be able to do, you know, some of the things I'm doing in my life today without realizing that good comes out of bad stuff. And he he thanked us, although our study had nothing to do with what he had experienced, it resonated with him because of what he had experienced. Well, yeah, I I know that some of the things that have happened to me in my life, um, at one point I had somebody steal my website. And um, <laughs> it was, it was a, you know, I, I worked hard and long on it. And, and the fact that someone could take it away from me that fast um, was devastating. And, and yet I, hacked, I had somebody hack into my site. I got it back. And, and I learned that, that what I had been relying upon them to do for me be, because they told me I couldn't possibly do it. I realized, you know, I'm not going to, you know, let somebody do this stuff. I'm going to learn to do it myself. And so I, I grew tremendously from it, and I was so grateful afterwards, a year or so later, but but not spiritual enough to write her a thank you note. Um, so that, you know, it, it's kind of like when you when you take these situations and you grow from them, you know, in many cases, there are lots of people that I'm not going to write a thank you note for, but but I grew tremendously from my experience of them, so that so that it's it's sort of like, I think it's important that that we look upon these situations, these traumas, these difficulties, and in retrospect we can see how we grew from them, and 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 how we were able to either change our value system so that our values were closer to home. And, you know, it's not a car. It's not a big deal. You can get around in other ways, that type of thing. Uh, you do learn, and you grow from them. And 
sometimes the, the retrospect has to be a number of years, but but ultimately it does come in there, and it's not the worst time in your life. It's it's a challenging time, and you know if everything came easy, we wouldn't value it as much. But what we gain from the traumas is so valuable to us because it 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 shows us that we can really roll up our sleeves and make changes and grow and evolve and come out of it a better person. So I, I think that while your book, you know, focuses on trauma, a huge trauma, but but the, uh, the word trauma in all of our lives does bring up certain aspects uh, and areas in your life where there was a trauma. I don't think anybody could read your book and not have to think back about traumas in their own life. I, I don't. I don't. I don't think it's impossible for somebody to read this book and not think of the traumas in their own lives. I don't know if it's the word trauma or the experience or what. What was it? But, but you know, you certainly trigger something in in someone's mind when you say trauma, and and it, it's it was a very. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it's a word that, that will send everybody into their own life and, and, and figuring out, did I have trauma in my life? Was that, that, that wasn't an intent, probably, but I think it's something that it did absolutely, it will trigger in everybody who reads this book. Jackie, do you feel that that, that word is a trigger for people, or do you think it just came across as that? Uh, I, I honestly, I, I'm not sure. But the thought that had just come to me while you were talking was, Linda Lane was the first person we interviewed, and when she read the book, she said that she read her interview, and she put it down, and she was crying, and she didn't know if she could hear the rest of the interviews. I don't think that she realized how bad the trauma was that she had experienced until she read it, read it, you know, after, after telling the story to us going, you know, I had uh-huh. enough to ask questions back to her and then her actually reading it in print, what truly happened to her. Oh so, yeah. Yeah. So I, so I don't know. I don't know if the word trauma possibly is the thing, but, Well, I think you know when. I, well, yeah, but when 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 I got done with the book, I sat down and, like I said, I I, I listed things in my life that I felt were trauma worthy, mm-hmm. and I looked yeah, at it and I yeah. thought, "Holy crap, that's a lot!" And 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 like I like I have said before, everybody has a different description of the word. But mm-hmm. but in many ways it's it's it, it denotes a time in our life when when we felt out of control and yet and yet you know at, at just just it, it's a frightening time because you're out of control and when you look back when I look back on every single one of these instances it they were times when I felt out of control and yet I had to grow into control. And you know, it 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 made me have a better perspective of some of the things that I've experienced in life, and and I think that 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 many people are going to have that kind of a feeling when they read this book because not everybody has experienced 
a bridge collapsing that close to them, or 9-11. Um, I, I know during 9-11, um, I lived close enough to New York City that, that if the wind was right, we, we got ashes in our yard. Wow. And it was it was like, you know, knowing what those ashes were was traumatizing. It was almost disrespectful to try to hose them down or wash them away or sweep them away because of what what they were connected to. And and I think everybody has those moments in life where, where something hits you that is so much bigger than you that you just don't know how to deal with it. I think my, my you know, my I said to my mother at the time, I, I said, Where do you send a casserole to? You know, when when what? when there is you know, you want to do something. You want to help. You want to touch everybody and let them know that you're there. And those are the times. 9/11 is one of those times, and I'm and I'm sure there have been other time bombing of Pearl Harbor, perhaps another one, where you you're in you're in it, but you're not in it. You you feel it. You want to help. You want to serve in some way or or make a difference or or touch someone and let them know that you're there and and that's that's it feels like that's what happened in Point Pleasant as a as a group as a community everyone was one for that short period of time and and that's that's a gift actually to to have that feeling and knowing that that everybody is kind of in the same place you are at that same time frame so yeah. you know uh, uh, just uh, a frightening thing and and yet one of those few times when the world stands still well with 9-11 when the world stands still and everything stops for a moment because something so horrific has happened you just can't believe it and and in Point Pleasant that bridge going down stopped everybody in that moment for for a, a brief period of time when everyone was one so an amazing feeling certainly for anybody in that town who was connected to it because everybody felt the same way and there was there were no arguments there were no battles there was you know you you just everything stopped and the whole town was one so you know that was a, a magical time frame in in a in a strange and wonderful way and, and was, then you have more it was, <laughs> yeah. it was it was really touching because like Linda Lane had shared a bunch of pictures with us um, when we did, she came along when we interviewed Marva Bailey, and she shared a bunch of pictures. And there were several pictures where um, you could just see people lining the bank, and mm-hmm. they were, you know, shoulder to shoulder, people everywhere, just like standing there. And they weren't standing there like you know how you drive past an accident and you're like gawking to see, you know, what happened, what happened. They were standing there yeah. in support. Jimmy Wedge said his friends stayed with him, stayed with him through the entire thing until his parents were brought up out of that river. They were with him after that. They were with him through the funeral. I mean, they were side by side, would not leave his side, you know, and that's just the way it was. Everybody clung to every you know, to each other, and Charlene Westwood said that we clung to each other. We had to cling to you. Know, we had to become, you know, become, hold, hold together during this very horrible time. 
it was just, she said it was unbelievable. Just, it was just unbelievable. You know, they lost school teachers. They lost little girls in their classrooms. I mean, yeah. So. Well, there was a woman, there was a woman on the way to the hospital to have a baby. Mm-hmm. Who, who yeah. was on the bridge. That. With Charlene's mom so was I- a school teacher. So she um, was literally friends with, with these women that died on the bridge. The woman who had a baby, who was on the way to the hospital to have a baby. So how horrifying. I'm I'm wondering how many people who are still in Point Pleasant were there when the bridge went down. I'm I'm wondering if that experience kept people in that locality or if they moved away. Um, was there any way of, of determining how many people just left the area never to come back and how many people just stayed there? Because you I know, that kind of experience, you know, that kind of experience kind of cements you together as a group. Yeah. I, I don't know. Charlene left. She, she left and she moved to England and she was married for 40 years or something like that. Um, and then her husband passed away and she came back. And, you know, her interview was probably one of the shortest interviews we had. But, you know, for her mom to be friends with the teachers that lost their lives on the bridge, her father literally Mm -hmm. saw the bridge coming down in his, he was a manager at um, the tire factory and some of the managers were on the bridge and they died. So, I mean, Denny Bellamy left, he came back. I mean, it seems like a lot of the same people, a, a lot of the people, though, from Point Pleasant will not talk about it. They do not want to talk about it. I think there's just a lot of pain still left for so many. Well, they see, if, you know, it It just sort of seemed like so many of the people. Now, you only interviewed, I think, 11 people, but I, I, I would bet that there are a lot of people there that are still there because they just can't leave the area. There's mm-hmm. something that holds them there. Yeah. Because there's well, an energetic when something like that happens. Yes. Because it was said if you if you if you didn't know somebody on the bridge, you knew somebody that knew somebody. Mm-hmm. I mean there was always somebody was related because it was a small town. I grew up in a small town of twenty five hundred if, if a, something like that would have happened to that town, I would have known every person that was from our area that was on there. I would have known either, you know, their their cousins or their aunts or, you know, I would have known because it's a small town. So uh-huh. I, I, I wonder if, that that, if there's a group, I, if there's a group energy that is still there and, and, it's sort of it's sort of like you know how we have the last survivor of World War Two, and you know it's the last person that that you know was was present. I'm wondering. Uh, somebody wondered about the memorial that was that was not there for the bridge. Has has something been put up um, since since then, or is there just still a placard there? Well, that would have been Marva Marva Bailey, um, Linda's friend. And she had made the comment that she wishes that the Ohio side would do more in terms of commemorating the bridge disaster and that there's just a small placard there. She says the West Virginia side, and we can attest to this, they've done a great job 
of commemorating the Silver Bridge disaster with various monuments throughout the area. And then, of course, the, they have a ceremony every December 15th to commemorate uh-huh. the folks who lost their lives there as well, too. But on the Ohio side, for whatever reason, they just haven't gone to the same length that the West Virginia side has. It just, it's, it's that, that, that element of, you know, a small town, so there's an energy there, a group energy, and then when you go through something like this, um, it, makes, it, it, it makes everybody closer. And, and, of course, now you're creating the same kind of group-type energy with the Mothman Festival. And, you know, that, that'll just continue to grow. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's really quite amazing how, how that has, has – how many years has it been going on now? Really since the movie came out. Okay. And they had to cancel it a couple of years because of the coronavirus. But they opened it back up again last year, and they had a phenomenal turnout. Last year, last year is the first year that we actually went to a real Mothman festival. We've been to Point Pleasant many, many times, but we've never been there during festival time. And there were so many people there. Uh, we, we thought it might have been you know, upwards of 20,000 people there, but we're, we're hearing that it was – somewhere between fifteen and 20,000, but Point Pleasant only has 4,000 residents. So that's four to five times in the population of the whole town. Well, it would, you know, I'd be willing to bet it's going to continue, and and I would I would bet that Mothman will, will certainly serve the community well. Um, I'm not sure that was his intent. And, ha- oh, Mothman... Everybody calls him a him. How do you know? How do they know? It's a him. <laughs> That's a really good question. Nobody really does know that. Oh, okay. I just thought there might have been some discerning physical attributes that might have told people, but um, it, it just it's it's you know I I get a feeling that that the energy that I get when anybody talks about Mothman, is not one of fear, but, you know, he may have been very confused as far as what was going on there. But the fact that his appearances stopped when the bridge went down, I find fascinating. Well, one of the things Jeff Wamsley told us was that, and we've heard this also from various sources, that the sightings didn't stop altogether. They were actually slowing down the last probably five to six months before the bridge collapsed, what did happen was that everybody focused on the aftermath of the bridge disaster. So there was no focus going on to anything paranormal. In fact, people didn't even want to hear talk about that once the bridge disaster happened because now we're burying friends. We're, you know, we're burying family members. This is real. Yeah. And so whatever was going on there before, just it wasn't a focus. But there have been sightings there. I mean, there have been sightings, you know, every few years and sometimes more frequent than than others, but it never stopped entirely. But that, that microcosm of those 13 months before the Silver Bridge disaster happened, there's never been that type of an intensity. And this is a very small community with close to 200 sightings reported, which means that the people who didn't report it, there probably were more than 200 who didn't report it. So all uh-huh. kinds of people were seeing it then, 
it just hasn't been that kind of a frequency or that kind of an intensity since then. Now, I know there are some drawings, um, and and there is a statue. How closely do the drawings and the statue really reflect what people did see? Really not whatsoever. The the statue itself <laughs> was based upon a, a Frank Frazetta rendition of the Mothman that came out on one of the versions of the Mothman Prophecies book covers. Mm-hmm. When we see, and Jeff, Jeff has the original drawings that uh, the Scarberries and the Millettes made of what they saw, it looks absolutely nothing like what that statue looks. That statue looks awesome. I mean, it looks powerful. It looks really cool. It looks very cryptic, but it doesn't yeah. look anything like the drawings. That's, that's what the feeling I was getting, that it's, it's sort of like, well, sometimes when, when a picture is taken of you, you look at it and say, that's not me. And I had a feeling that if the Mothman looked at what it was depicted at, it would it would stand back in horror and say, you've got to be kidding me. Um, <laughs> because, I mean, we're, I mean... It, was it represented as something fearful on purpose? I mean, because I didn't get the feeling that it was fearful. Well, I think that it, that image sells. It, it sells. So <clears throat> fear is yeah. always going to sell. And I think that that's one of the reasons it was done that way. I get you. It, it just, um, I, I would like to, to I. Is there anywhere you you can actually see the original photos, uh, not photos, but the original pictures that were drawn? Do we have those? Is that something that we could send? Well, yeah, because they're inside uh, one of Jeff Wansley's books. The drawing, isn't it? The drawing? I'm pretty sure it is. I mean, if he was called a bird man, then, then, you know, obviously he could fly. It could fly. And, and you know, the, the feeling that, you know, that it was black, mostly seen at night. So, yeah, I can, I can see that. But I don't get the feeling that it was really scary. Um, big and different, but not really, really scary. And, and of course, you're right. Fear sells. You know, if 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 it weren't fearful, um, then then you wouldn't get the advertisement and you wouldn't get the crowds and the whole thing. So it would it would be kind of. I mean, I don't want to. I, I I don't want to suggest. You know, you go and try to bring it back. But um, what a great interview that would be. Um, hmm. But it it just. <laughs> Well, you know, you, you, well, no, that's for another time. Um, but it just feels to me as though the actual presence wasn't meant to be fearful. It was just there, and, and it has been, you know, it has certainly been with Mothman, you know, the, the movie. It, 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 they portrayed it, uh, you know, as a very fearful presence, and yet it didn't feel that way. And 
I, I think the never movie, hurt anybody. No. And it's sort of like Bigfoot, I don't believe, has ever hurt anybody either, nor the Yeti, nor, you know, these interdimensional, in my, in my mind, interdimensional visitors who come and go. Um, you know, if, if the Earth plane is, is a place to take a vacation and relax, I, I think we are off the top bestseller list for sure because, you know, we, we, when, when we don't understand things, we often make them into something evil and negative and we have to, you know, kill them or, you know, defend ourselves from them. Um, it just, uh, it, it's, it's I, I understand the money is made because it's fearful, but it doesn't give me the impression that it was, that it was fearful. It was scary, but, you know, a couple of kids got spooked. But it doesn't feel to me as though it had a, had a negative intent, I guess is the best way to put it. It's, it's sort well, of Linda like... Scarberry, Linda Scarberry, who was one of the original four Point Pleasant Mothman witnesses, claimed to have seen the Mothman many, many, many times afterwards, up to hundreds of times after her original sighting. And at one point she said that she had seen Mothman on top of a building across the way from where she was living at the time. And it was cold outside and it was snowing and that it seemed to have its wings wrapped around itself and it looked forlorn and she felt that it was lost and it was a sympathetic figure. So in, in her way of looking at it, at least for that particular instance, she seemed to feel that it was, it was just it was a traveler that was out of its element and didn't know how to get back home. Yeah. Wow. You know, someday somebody ought to write it from the perspective of Mothman. I mean, when you when you stop to to think about how how your presence is scaring people and they're terrified of you and yada yada yada. Um Somehow somebody ought to tell Mothman's side. Um, Ray Barker actually tried to do that. He actually published a book in 1970 called The Silver Bridge, and that actually came out five years before John Keel's Mothman prophecy. Some of the chapters of that book are written from Mothman's perspective, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a fascinating experience. I think that... You know, having something like that occur does does in in many ways um, let you know that that life is bigger and the world is stranger and and there are more things out there that we don't understand and it it kind of expands your awareness and I think that in that in that way he's uh, Mothman has been very beneficial certainly to Point Pleasant um, and and the fact that the tragedy has been able to be snowballed into something that is going to benefit the town. And in many ways, it does feel as though the, the tragedy has provided the, the town the opportunity to grow in, in new and different ways. Certainly, its population has got to be more now than it was um, back in 67. That was 74, 75 years ago. 74 years ago. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting, actually, 
that, you know, the bridge and Mothman happen in um, 67. 67? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and then Roswell was 47, so, you know, it was it was 20 years after, but... I think that the Mothman Festival is is slowly is slowly becoming as Roswell has become, you know, a a place for people to go to experience elements of the strange and unusual and metaphysical. Maybe that uh, it's a site for celebration now instead of you know mourning as it was back in '67. So it, it, has, it actually you know, is called it's called the paranormal or it's called the Roswell of the East now. The Mothman or the Point Pleasant area is considered Roswell of the East. Well, I can see why. For sure. Yeah. Um, Cause it's, cause it's well, definitely I, 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 things oh, happening yeah. there. Yeah. Well you definitely when still have the energy you know of of the, the what 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 radiated out when the bridge went down was was an energy of grief and sorrow with it was profound and mm-hmm. and you know so yeah it 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 made a it made an imprint in time with that many people crossing over at the same time that that Certainly is noticeable. It's a blip on the chart for sure. As Roswell was, as 9/11 was. It wasn't, you know, not not as many people passed as 9/11, but it certainly was that kind of tragedy that certainly um, is is notable in in the heartbeat of of the world. I would say it, it's 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 an amazing place. I would think energetically to be there because there it feels like there's an electricity that is certainly growing um over time and certainly with with you know having at least 10,000 people come and walk through your streets adds to that energetic and gosh you know with, with the TNT I would I would certainly of course it's probably so crowded during the Mothman festival that you probably couldn't get peace and quiet to do something out at the site, but sure would be interesting. Have you ever oh, thought you, of you that? Can. When we went out there for the Mothman, I think it was for the festival. Maybe it, maybe it was not, I can't remember, but there was literally people that had like set up camp inside some of the igloos where the dynamite was stored during, you know, the big concrete igloos. Um, there were people like, had air mattresses and everything else they were sleeping out there in them <laughs> so Whoa. it would it, be very distracting I mean honestly I would be terribly freaked out by spending a night in the TNT area just because there are copperheads and big spiders not to even mention the paranormal stuff that's occurring out there but people do it oh, you, you'd, you'd, you'd have me at snakes I would not be there um, yeah, but <clears throat> but I mean, if you've got a ghost box, then you obviously should be able to do astral travel and remote viewing. So, 
in the privacy of a quiet room, you could probably put yourself out there and you wouldn't have to worry about the snakes. Oh, you know what? That is a really good idea because I've practiced remote viewing and I've been wanting to get back into it. I think that's something that I'm going to work on before we go out to the festival. We're leaving in 10 days. So I think I'm going to, like, each day do a little bit of practice to get back into it and see what I can see. Well, if you need any suggestions or support or whatever, let me know. I can certainly provide that. And and actually, um, a number of years ago, I did um, remote viewing of, of pyramids around the world um, online. And I led the meditation and I had people from all over the world that tuned into the meditation, and we did remote viewing that way, and they all wrote down their impressions and sent them in. So you could even do it in a group remotely. Um, like I said, I did it online on a blog talk show, and um, people, people tuned in, and once I linked everybody together, we did the remote viewing. And it was fascinating at, at the similarities that people were able to to uh, channel back. So think about that it. That does sound fascinating. <laughs> that, that sounds really fascinating. Well, I can help you facilitate that if you ever want to do it. It doesn't have to be broadcast. It doesn't have to be a radio show. But I can set up a private um, a private show so that only people that are invited can get in, and you can lead a meditation back there, and people can just call in to link into the, the, the same frequency. And if you, if you need somebody to facilitate it, I'd be happy to do it for you. I'll, I'll keep that in mind, and we will be in touch about that, because that sounds like it <laughs> would be, that would be fun. <laughs> That would be, that would be well, fun. it's informative too, and and I think yeah. the cool thing of, the cool thing about it w- when I did it was that I had people from all over the world that were all, pu- all all being pulled together energetically because they were all on the same electrical connection as I was, so mm-hmm. the the energies were all linked, which was you know I was always very high after it because it was like you know there were. 30, 40 people that were linking into to me to link into the meditation that I was leading, and and it was it was energetically just profound. So in a way, I got to do the traveling and have the energy of 40 or 50 other people that facilitated me to get to a level where I could pull everybody together and we could go somewhere. So it was it was a very cool experience. So you know. Happily would I help you if you'd like to do that and or or give you suggestions as to how to do it for yourself. I don't have to be involved, but um it i I think that i I just think there's so much there at the t n t place that that and I don't want to diminish Mothman because I think you know that that was an amazing experience too, but that's that's an experience that was of a physical emotional type of expansion and TNA ha- the TNT plant has something of a more spiritual energetic, which could be very impressive. So, mm-hmm. so anyhow, 
Um, I, I think the two of you have. I love the fact that you know you've got the the spiritual modality, and he's got the psych um, modality, and you combined them beautifully, so that you know nobody was in. You know, you, you just the two of them were combined that that make a powerful message that the book sends out, and I think a lot of people that read the book will not recognize the message it sent but subconsciously it certainly will make a change and a difference in their lives because they will be more aware of the term trauma and how it can be of benefit to you as as, as a learning experience a growing experience that can benefit one and, and change one's life and the trajectory of one's life even so um it 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 was fascinating how how you also in the book um Bill, I'm very impressed with the way you you put together the the topics that you were looking at. How how you meticulously asked everybody the same questions in the same way, and how you pulled the experience together. And you had your your trigger words and your trigger shifts and changes. And you know how many people said you know one thing and another, and how you pulled it together to to give you um, a very cohesive picture of what went on in these people's minds and 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 their their spirits so you know i i i was really impressed with that and it was sort of like you know how do they keep to this to this um script and and you know not get off track and you you did it you did it very professionally (laughs) I'm afraid I would have gone off track too often for you to be of any use, but but um, the fact that you had your guidelines so so definitely in place, so that so that you kept pulling them back to the questions you had asked, and and you let them wander off from time to time, but you always pulled them back to the same to the same place, and you answered this, you asked the same questions, you know, repeatedly of everyone, which was. I don't think they realized the kind of meticulous job you were doing with the interviews because you made them very personal and and that that in and of itself is an amazing gift and uh you know I I was very impressed with that it was like damn they're good so we had so some wonderful people book, to work with we we really did Well is this next book going to be as structured or are you going to go in new directions? Well, we've talked about that a little bit, and I think we want to use a similar structure, but I think it's going to be a little bit less academic. I mean, we, we lean really hard on the academic structure for the chapters of the way that we laid the book out. And I think that although we'll follow a similar process, I think it's going to be a little bit more user-friendly when it comes to the reading experience. I mean, we had the charts and the graphs and different things that we included in the book this go around. We'll probably do some of that for the next one as well, too, but some of the redundancy in the way that it, the book's written probably won't follow the exact same format, but I think the same spirit's going to be there, if that makes sense. Well, so you did, you have your um, PhD. Was this part of it? No, this is a, this is a, it follows the same structure of a scientific um, dissertation or journal article yeah, or what felt, have it, you. It, you know, my, my background it, is education, 
And so, mm-hmm. you know, I said, well, this must have been part of a dissertation. <laughs> no, it really wasn't. But it played out very much like a dissertation. I mean, it really is a dissertation with interviews interspersed in between it. So the, it's got uh-huh. the same basic structure as a dissertation would, a qualitative dissertation, that is, um, with the interviews interspersed well, in the different could, chapters. I mean, it 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 certainly could have... Um, it takes on the same feeling as a uh, a paper that was written for a scientific type um, mo- model, as opposed to, you know, one that is that is to be read, you know, as 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 a book book. But but it 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 was so fascinating to listen to all of the different responses that different people gave to the same questions. So. You know, it was fascinating in that way, but uh, so it's it's going to be interesting to see what the two of you come up with next, uh, because uh, you definitely have a wonderful combi- combination of of your different modalities that you're bringing into play here, and and it might turn you a little looser, Jackie, to do a little of the stuff that that you know is is more in your venue. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's obvious that you were both interviewing, and, and, and you know, you made it very clear that both of you were doing the interviews. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see where you go next. I mean, just oh, I didn't, I forgot the clock. Um, <laughs> you two are going to be at the Mothman Festival. I, I, yeah, I forget I'm on a radio show often. Um, <laughs> Mothman Festival is this September, correct? Yeah. September 16th and, what, and 17th. And if people want to come in and, and take a look at everything, they should make their reservations early? Oh, it's too late. If you're going to get a reservation now, say. you probably yeah you probably need to be looking in the Dayton area or small towns. Maybe Ripley might still have some rooms, which is about an hour drive from Point Pleasant. Wow. Um, they might find an Airbnb, maybe if somebody canceled one of those at this point. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, there's, it's getting filled up for next year already. Wow. There's very limited hotel, yeah, yeah, for 2024. So, um, but if, if well, they do get there, we're behind, we'll be behind the Mothman statue in the tent So and speaking at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So if anybody does well. get there and wants to meet us we'd be happy to talk i i will bet you money you will have some people that have heard this show because um it's impressive and you'll have your books there as well i would i would imagine absolutely we will (laughs) (laughs) well getting an autographed copy is is really a pretty cool idea um well so i want to thank you so much is there a website too that people can go to not yet. We're working on that right now. Um, but Facebook page, Phenomenology Research Professionals, or they can email us if they'd like to contact us at 2022PRP at gmail.com. Okay. Well, I am sure you may have some questions coming your way. So thank you both very much. I so appreciate your taking the time. And um, 
allowing us to play with this material to a certain degree, but the message out there is, is you know, traumas really are a gift when looked at in the proper perspective. So um, hopefully it will help some people to understand that, that uh, everything does happen for a reason. It's just hard to find sometimes. But thank you again for being here. I so, so appreciate your being here, and uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And um, we'll be back tomorrow night. Mark has another fascinating show on, online, too. So good night, everybody. Thank you, Barb. Thank you. Thank you.